Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens, a Radical Pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether, here with my co-host, Tina Pippin, and our December 2022 guest, Sarah Silverman. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Sarah. In this segment, we continue our conversation about practices and theories of universal design, access, and feminist pedagogy. We also discuss the ambivalent histories and ambivalent presence of centers for teaching and learning on college and university campuses. We also discuss our utopian feminist visions for education, and we share some of our um, top recommendations for listeners. Welcome back to Sarah Silverman and to all of you tuning in to Nothing Never Happens. This is amazing and so helpful to me to hear right now. This semester I tried a bunch of different sort of more experimental, like we're going places, we're doing community collaborations, like sort of changing the structure of the classroom even more than I already had. And some of it was just complete face plant. And um, so this, you know, penultimate week of the semester and before that, there have been moments in my classes where students are just like, what were you thinking when you decided to do this or that? Um, It would help us to understand what was in your mind as you did this. And I felt a little I mean, I felt very grateful that they were inviting me into conversation and then like I was being lit on fire. Um, So they and I it will it will shape my pedagogy from here on out. And so anyway, thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Um, I'm trying to think about where to go next. I want to make sure that we talk about um, uh, ed tech and surveillance. Um, I think with the, you know, lighting on fire moment, um, a lot of what I think you've written and have talked about a little bit already here about what these forms of technological surveillance are designed to do is keep students from, you know, going outside of a very narrow path and, you know, heaven forbid, like, stand up, rebel, uh, push back on the pedagogy. And so I wonder if you could maybe just sort of paint a picture of, like, the landscape of ed tech surveillance, what you're really worried about, and um, how you might advise some of us who are a wash in the sea of um, learning management systems and yeah. like remote proctoring life to to navigate this. Yeah. Okay, so I want to you know give give credit to for like as I'm starting because I'm going to introduce this term academic surveillance technology. I want to give credit to the person who I think seems to have coined it, but then like also comrades and teachers in, in this fight. So Ian Linkletter, um, I think coined this term academic surveillance technology, and he has also been in a legal fight with the company Proctorio um, for a really long time now, multiple years. And today, as we are recording this, he's actually having one of his appeals heard in, in court in British Columbia. But um he shared a couple of YouTube videos that kind of explained how Proctorio works. It's a remote proctoring service. Um, it uses artificial intelligence to flag certain behaviors and actions that students might 
might do while they're taking an exam, like in their own home online, um, as cheating, as suspicious. Um, and he, um, you know, in, in all his, in his wisdom and good intentions wanted to tell, tell people, hey, this is what this project is doing. It's what, it's watching students and it's flagging really behaviors that have nothing to do with teaching necessarily as potentially suspicious. Um, and he was hit with a big lawsuit. Um, by that company, and they have not backed down. Um, it's been really financially difficult, emotionally difficult for him. Um, and so I just want I just want to you know raise awareness of this story. It's not just that these products harm students and target students like freedom and learning and try to box faculty into believing that they need to watch their students while they do their work. It's that the companies also want to limit free speech and free discussion. Um, about what these technologies do. And yes, that's what's going on with, with Ian. And I, I also just, you know, want to, want to mention that, you know, everything I know about this topic has been informed by, uh, people who have been really on the, on the forefront of the discussion. So I mentioned Ian and I also want to mention, um, my colleague Autumn Keynes, who I work with directly at UM Dearborn, but has also been really a great activist in this space. Um, as well as, uh, hold on, I have everyone written down that I want to, I want to mention, uh, Charles Logan, Chris Gilliard, Chase Wagger, Lydia Brown, and Maha Belli also, who was a, a former, uh, guest on this podcast. And those are just, those are just a few people, but a, a few of the people who have done a lot of work to, you know, raise awareness about remote proctoring. Um, these companies existed, these products existed before the pandemic. Um, but I think that there was a, a real turning point during the pandemic in North American universities um, with their uh, implementation at scale. Um, so, you know, there were definitely a lot of online programs that were using things like Proctorio and another product called ProctorU. Um, it was a little bit more marginal at the time. It was sort of like, okay, you're part of an online program and you know going in that there's going to be exams. You can take them at home or you can take them at a proctoring center, but just know if you take them at home, there's going to be this little product installed on your computer. It's going to watch you just to make sure you're not cheating. Okay. It's bad. It's bad enough, but it was not used at, at the widest scale possible. When everybody transitions to emergency remote teaching, again, I'm thinking in the North American context here, um, there is this like mass panic and we were all in it, I think, <laughs> about, well, what's going to happen for exams? You know, if, if you're the teach the kind of class or you teach in the kind of school where people file into that big auditorium and sit down with their Scantron sheet or something, and, you know, there's somebody there who's, who's watching you. So how's this going to work when, when students go home, um, and have to do all of this at home? Um, this is when, I think, and I'm, I'm working on trying to learn more specifics. I think that remote proctoring was implemented like at the largest scale that we've seen. Um, and the CARES Act, you know, which was this massive bailout bill that a lot of money went to higher ed, um, through the CARES Act contained a provision that you were allowed to spend the money on services and products that support distance instruction um, that, you know, and I guess the intention was that they wanted education to continue, right? So 
say, for example, you needed a Zoom license. You know, we all needed Zoom to teach or to deliver content or whatever it was. Okay, so you could use some of your CARES Act grant money to buy Zoom licenses for everybody so that you can continue, you know, uh, having discussions and doing lectures and things like that. That money could also be used for remote proctoring contracts. Um, and the, it can be used for really anything that someone can make the argument that it supports distance education and the, con the continuity of instruction, basically. And so, you know, some really well-meaning people, like at my school, used it to do faculty development and to bring in speakers and get resources to help people adjust to teaching online when they weren't familiar with it before. In other situations, you can buy a product that is designed to spy on your students and report on their behaviors to their instructors. And, I mean, this is literally how Proctorio works. Make a suspicion flag and a suspicion level um, for different things that they do. Um, you know, one of the and so one of the things that kind of came to light at this mass implementation of remote proctoring um, tools is number one that they're bot they tend to be biased and I'm I'm going to be really careful because of how litigious these companies can be. So I'm not going to say any names. So I'm just going to say the remote proctoring products in general they can be really biased. Um, Facial recognition technology, which is used in some of these products, is known to um, be very bad at recognizing certain people's faces, especially if you have darker skin. You wear anything on your face, like a hijab or any other kind of religious headgear. Um, it also is really bad in situations where there's not adequate lighting. Um, and you know, these these products, the way they work is that a lot of times they can't verify your identity, verify your identity, right? They can't take a picture of your face that satisfies the software. They can't match it with your ID or whatever. They lock you out of what comes next, right? So this is a sort of like policing of the student's even ability to do the work that's being assigned assigned to them. And then the next thing is the vision of integrity the vision of, you know, upright academic behavior that is presented by these products is that there can't be any noise. There can't be any other people. They need to be able to see around the room where you are. So you need to pick up your computer and let the camera like zoom around your room to see the inside of your private bedroom um, at, at your home. And all of these things, um, you know, are really um, invasions of privacy, but also prevent most many students from even meeting the basic requirements um, to take some sort of assessment without being marked as suspicious. Because you know what, when a lot of students go back to their homes, um, there are other people there. There are parents, there are children, there are their family members and friends. Um, as a, another really basic example, if somebody is disabled, they might have a home health attendant. They might have other people who are caring for them. You might be caring for other people. The, the idea that you're going to be in your private home and you're going to be able to literally, like, kind of literally sanitize it <laughs> in this way of all other 
relations and connections is the vision of academic integrity and upright academic behavior that is um, supposed by these products. And that is that is really incredibly harmful. Moving on to the other harms that I believe these products cause is that, you know, think about the, the feeling of having a computer watch you when you when you walk through a store or, God forbid, walk down the street and you realize that you're being watched either by a computer or by a person. It's really distressing. You understand that your freedom is being uh, is being limited in, in some way. Um, if you understand how specifically the product Proctorio works, you also might know that there's an actual recording being taken of you that's going to appear on your professor's computer later on. Um, and um, this is, I mean, I have a whole uh, paper you can look up where I detail with my colleague Autumn Keynes all of the harms, but I'll just add in one, one more harm, one more harm, which is, you know, not everybody even has the device or the place to do, to do this. Um, you know, digital redlining, um, which I believe was introduced by Chris Gilliard as a term, means that not everybody even has like the correct bandwidth to run these programs on their computer or Wi-Fi access at all. Like, I'm pretty sure you can't take your remote proctored exam if you're in the McDonald's parking lot using their Wi-Fi because you don't have any at home. Um, and you might not even have the correct kind of computer that runs this program. And so uh, all of all of these things are just like I, the term I used before is boxing students in, like almost no student can fit in this box, but the the vision of what it means to be a good student offered by these products is, yeah, you got to be in that box. No distractions. You got perfect Wi-Fi. Your computer works perfectly. Your body behaves in the way that we behave. We believe a normal body behaves. And only after you've satisfied all those conditions can you take this exam without being flagged as suspicious. Uh, and that's that's kind of what we're looking, <laughs> that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, there has been, um, I think, some positive movement on trying to get this stuff off campuses. Um, I, I hesitate to ever say I'm proud of the institution of higher education. I, I am proud of the people at my institution um, who have made the move to more or less ban all remote proctoring from our campus. Um, and the thing about banning a harmful educational technology is it's not a one-time thing. <laughs> Even though we theoretically have a ban, um, one of the one of the ways that this can creep back into your educational ecosystem is by uh, having a side deal with a product that you use. Um, so I don't know if any of you have ever assigned a textbook through McGraw-Hill. Um, probably not. A lot of people do this. You know, they, they assign a textbook through McGraw-Hill, and then you can do uh, readings and quizzes or little assignments through the, this portal. It turns out that you can now watch your students on Proctorio through McGraw-Hill. <laughs> um, they made a deal together. And so, so the the way that this impacts students is that, Okay, say you have a, a well-meaning person such as me, trying not to be co-opted, trying to protect students from uh, surveillance technology. And so, you know, we've informed higher-ups, don't make a deal with Procturio, don't bring this technology onto our campus, here are all the harms. And they say, okay, yeah, I agree. Thanks for um, 
thanks for that information. And we agree with you. So no deals with, no, we're not buying any of that stuff. We'll just come up with alternatives for our students. Okay, now, but we have what seems to be somewhat innocent. I mean, textbook companies are never innocent, right? But seems to be this other educational technology where students are just doing their readings, maybe submitting some assignments, reading, reading responses, doing quizzes. What's the problem with that? Um, you know, the, the Procter and Company makes a deal with them where through that portal, they can be exposed to the, to the surveillance. And no one at the university actually even knows about it necessarily until we start hearing those stories of students saying, hey, like my professor said I can't do this unless I use Proctorio or maybe it got turned on by accident. Um, I'm not saying that university oversight is like the best thing in the world. It can be really, really bad. <laughs> there could be bad actors who think that they're helping students that are really harming. Um, but in this case, it's, 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 it's like one example of how you think you've banned something and it comes back. It's like whack, it's like whack-a-mole. Um, but um, yeah, so overall, we have a number of institutions in North America that are starting to say, okay, we don't allow this sort of technology, or maybe we don't allow um, algorithmic proctoring, meaning that there's no human involved and you just have some software flagging, flagging students. Um, I'm concerned that the discussion about this is starting to die down in a way that will just settle at an equilibrium of like, okay, we're not using it at scale anymore, but it's still a routine component of attending any kind of university. And I think like the more students are taking classes online, because we will, we are reaching and will reach a new equilibrium where more classes than before the pandemic are being delivered online, where it becomes a sort of like tolerated part of the experience. Um, and there have just been like certain steps. Again, the CTL now has a page that says, oh, proctoring isn't really so great, even though we offer it through our school, here are some alternatives you could consider, you know. And, or maybe even the CTL now offers a workshop <laughs> that's like best practices for equity when using remote proctoring tool or something like that. And this is, you know, and so this is where I would come in and say, unfortunately, we need to just say blanket no to this. You know, we have to say this, this cannot exist on our campus because this is the kind of creep of, of the administrative priorities of the concessions to the various forces that want us to surveil our students is that, you know, this isn't happening at my school, but it's happened to my colleagues where someone comes into their office, they're an instructional designer or a faculty developer of some kind, and they say, like, look, we're not going to be able to completely dispense with remote proctoring. There are too many faculty that see it as completely integral to what they do. They're not going to offer online courses, which we need, which our students need anymore. They're not going to offer them anymore unless we provide them this concession that they can do remote proctoring. What I need you to do, uh, employee of the CTL or the EdTech Center or whatever, is I need you to figure out a way to constrain how much harm can be done. 
with these things. I need you to provide a web page and a resource and all of this material to make sure we kind of cover our butts and tell them, hey, by the way, this isn't great. This is not good for your students. They make the program makes a lot of mistakes. You could, you know, you might be flagging people for things that, you know, they didn't do it wrong, but the program will flag them as, as suspicious for some reason. And this is this is ultimately what I'm concerned about. Like, I've written before about the approach of using some sort of harm reduction in educational technology. But I think that's only appropriate um, in situations where there is pedagogical value, right, to the tool that we're using. And it has potential harms. And we want to make sure people are aware of those harms, you know, like. Google Docs, right? Like clearly pedagogical value there. It's good for sharing information. It's accessible. Multiple people can work on it at the same time. You can drop it in the Zoom chat and instantly get, you know, students um, a file that they need or information that they need. Students can work on things together. Fine. Okay. Is there potential harm of being involved in the whole Google ecosystem um, and the way that they use that data? Yeah. So we should be aware of that. The thing with remote proctoring and the reason I refuse to call it an educational technology is it has no educational value or pedagogical value whatsoever. It's not an educational technology. It's an academic surveillance technology. Um, and so, you know, these are, these are the areas where I think we need to really just refuse to engage with these things at all. And gets into another thing that has to do with CT, CTLs in general. I'll mention it here is, you know, look, we're not tenured, those of us who work in CTLs by, by and large, right? It's really hard to just say no to something. Um, it's really hard when you're making pretty bad salary, you're not tenured, don't have any sort of job security to when somebody comes into your office and says, I need you to make this page on the website, I need you to run this workshop, I need you to deliver this information to the faculty to say like, hey, no, I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not touching this. Um, and, you know, I think that's why we need to work on collective action uh, on this. Part of what I've tried to do is put out information through kind of like official enough channels, like peer-reviewed journals and whatever about how harmful these technologies are and how you can totally get by without them, no problem. Um, so that's like one form of trying to support folks out there who like, they don't wanna risk losing their job by just saying no to, to their boss. They need something to rely on. I think like a major criticism I also have is that we have professional organizations of people who do educational technology and faculty development. And this isn't what we're talking about, unfortunately. And like some of the big ed tech conferences allow Proctorio as a sponsor at their events, you know. So the, this is what, what I really think we need to continue, continue doing is like coming, coming together to resist these things, making the arguments um, that will be effective to students, the faculty, to, uh, to administrators. I personally am willing to risk risk a lot more for this just because like I just can't I couldn't sleep at night if I was like the one who like was facilitating anything about remote proctoring but I think that there's there's different there's different ways of addressing it um and I think we just need to keep the conversation going so that it doesn't go under the radar so much that it can kind of creep back in sorry that was long-winded but <laughs> 
That's great. We need to hear this. Uh, a lot of us don't know that we're part of it um, and what's happening in our colleges and universities with this um, proctoring. Well, you mentioned Centers for Teaching and Learning, so I want to go into that a bit because they can be um, uh, resistor, co, you know, co-resistors, co-conspirators, but more yeah. likely, <laughs> more likely they can be uh, carrying out um, the administration's work in a, in a university. So um, how do you see an ideal uh, center for teaching and learning sort of in, in terms of feminist revolutionary dreams? What would that look like uh, mm-hmm. if we could have that kind of center to support the work and the critical work that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay, so I don't I don't totally know what what the ideal version is. So maybe maybe we can kind of move there by naming some of the issues. Um and I'll also just share a little bit of my own story of getting into this work because I think I think it helps. Um which is I was really turned on to this work like from a from a place of I don't know where I'm go I'm not don't know where I'm going in this profession and I can see that so many of my fellow grad students like when I was in grad school also don't know where they're going they don't know how to teach nobody te- nobody teaches us how to teach for the for the most part um and in various academic departments at least the ones I was involved with there's not a lot of community there's not a lot of mutual support um and I found this amazing community um through the teaching and learning center where I was a grad student um and there was mentorship there was um really authentic sharing and understanding of everyone's experience in the academy and life experience um and then there was there was a job <laughs> there was someone who would who would pay you it's very difficult to make extra money as a, as a grad student um and you know so i was part of i was part of this group that offered um sort of like teaching support to other to other grad students and we would meet with other grad students one-on-one and we would do workshops and hold events um and it was really something that got me through grad school um it's where i like met a lot of the people i would actually call friends um and yeah and that that was really beautiful (laughs) and um i so so i decided because i wasn't all that interested in continuing in the field of research that i got my phd and like okay i'm gonna go and try to get a job doing this um and um i realized like how much that particular program and group i had been involved with was kind of in but not of the university uh to quote the undercommons and that's not always how it is um and but you know by the time i got to my first job um that job was in graduate student development so i was a staff as a staff member of the university and i was responsible for this program that was called a future faculty program right so no longer are we just supporting grad students in the actual labor that they do for the university which is you know teaching and research but oh, it's a professional development program. It's about your future, your future as a faculty member. And as we all know, a vanishingly small number of those graduate students will 
ever obtain the tenure track faculty position. And so I felt like I was asked to become a salesperson, basically, of this professional development vision, which is, okay, if you go to enough workshops and you work on your statement of teaching philosophy long enough and you put together this portfolio and you learn how to do the scholarship of teaching and learning and you learn all of these skills, that is going to make it more likely that you will get a job. Um, and I could just tell, I could just tell, like, first of all, that's not true. Many of my students in that program did not get jobs. And obviously they were highly qualified, dedicated teachers. Um, but that's not what gets you the job all the time. First, you know, there's, it's a real roll of the dice. And then there's a lot of biases that come into the process of the hire, of the hiring process in academia as well. And the second thing is, it's, you know, introducing uh, even more credentialism into the, you know, graduate student and postdoc experience. Um, it really just perpetuates, it perpetuates this myth that like you're just, you're acquiring tokens. Um, and that is really how the, pro I mean, the, this program was actually like, uh, organized in terms of like these building blocks up to the, up to the certificate. And it was so difficult to ever engage really deeply with like what the university is, what it does. And I tried to, I tried to teach against this kind of ideology that was being presented by the program in a lot of ways. It didn't always work. <laughs> um, and, you know, is at that time that I started trying to understand more about this teaching and learning center concept. Like, why do we all have one <laughs> on our campus, on our campuses nowadays? Where did, where did this all come from? What is faculty development all about? Um, and one of the things I started considering, this relates to a former guest on the podcast, Rod Ferguson as well, is that I, it, it seems from, from everything I can tell is a lot of faculty development came out of student protests, right? Of like the 60s and 70s, people demanding an ethnic studies curriculum, demanding that professors teach different stuff. Like when I come to this university, I want to learn about the experiences and study the texts and of, of people who are not just the people the professors are already familiar with, basically. And so um, it seems to me part of the background of faculty development was um, an attempt, a very constrained and like filtered through the administration, but still an attempt to respond to what, what students were asking for. Um, and to help faculty change their practices uh, to to meet some student demands. Um, I see nowadays that the concept of the teaching and learning center has is not exclusively become, but is very susceptible to administrative co-opting and. I wrote about this in, in the piece that I think you're referencing, but so, you know, there's this Twitter personality. It's totally anonymous. I have no idea who it is called at ask deans and it, they're supposed to be an associate dean. It's a, it's a parody account. Um, and I followed them for a while. They're very funny. You know, they have all sorts of like funny commentary on academic life. Um, but I started seeing that they keep talking about their center for teaching excellence, as they call it, center for teaching excellence. And, um, yeah, I'll just read you a couple. 
uh, of the of the tweets that made me think about this. So Associate Dean says the students are complaining that the production values in your online course are low quality. Uh, can you fix your home students your home studio? Sorry to make it more appealing. The Center for Teaching Excellence can help with suggestions. Okay, so that like that's one example. Here's another one. Please record and send the link to your Zoom class meetings to the Center for Teaching Excellence. They want to help make your class better. So like this parody, this person who's like a comedian basically is is introducing the idea that like, okay, what are we here for? Number one, we're here to create like annoying onerous requirements for you, like fix up your home studio, like the students don't think, and right, of course, blaming the students. Students don't think it looks good enough. And then, like, also this surveillance function, like, okay, yeah, everything you're doing, send it to them. They're going to look it over, and then they're going to report to us, you know, what uh, what you're doing and whether it's good enough. And when I first saw this, like, line of comedy, basically, I was annoyed because I was, like, so earnest, and I was like, hey, I'm trying to help, okay? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really putting my best foot forward to, like, help everyone through this pandemic thing, so like, could you please stop? attacking what we're doing but I eventually got over that and I was like look there's really an element of truth um to to this critique which is you know who who had to be the happy face of keep teaching continuity of instruction when everyone was sent home for the pandemic that was us we are the ones who had to I don't want to say force but like drag (laughs) uh through continuing these courses when like a lot of really difficult stuff was going on for everybody in any given university community. Um, so much so that like I worked for this graduate at the time, I worked for this like small graduate student development program. And it turns out that the provost who controlled our whole like overarching unit or whatever was able to totally reallocate my time away from that to just do like continuity instruction stuff. Um, and, you know, that was like one of my first hints that like, oh, this can be totally co-opted for whatever purpose um, the, administra- the administration wants. Another kind of example of, of co-opting um, that I want, I want to bring up, and this is, this is something I don't think a lot of people who work in CTLs like to talk about, so we have a professional kind of code of ethics that you can look up on um, POD, which is our kind of organizational um, sort of association. You know, it's kind of like an academic association. And I believe it says on there, and if it doesn't say it explicitly, it was something I was taught, you know, when I was being brought up in this CTL work, um, is that it's like, it's got to be anonymous. It's got to be non-evaluative. Right. When you work with an ins- with, with an instructor anonymous in the sense that, like, you're not really supposed to have reported back to their boss. <laughs> if like, uh, sorry, not anonymous. Confidential is what I mean. It's supposed to be confidential and non-evaluative. So, like if somebody makes a meeting with you and says, OK, I'm having this problem in my class, like a student and I are not really getting along or um, I can't provide what the student needs. Like, can you help me? And you're not supposed to go report it back to their boss. And you're also not supposed to, like, definitively tell them, like, this is good, this is bad, what you're doing. It's supposed to be more of, like, a a platform for, like, reflection and exploration. Um, and this is what I was taught when I was a grad student and I was, be- like, becoming a teaching, a teaching consultant. I, 
I bet you that everybody who has like really done this job has been in the following situation. And I have been a lot, a lot of times. You get an email from a chair, right? And it says, we've got an instructor here. Oftentimes, the person has some sort of fringe marginal identity. Oftentimes, they're an adjunct um, or a grad student, or they are a person of color, or they have a disability, or whatever it is. This is just my experience, but I think a lot of other people have had this, and they say their student reviews are bad. And they essentially tell you that they've been flagged for being fired in some way. Um, and the ask is, can you remediate this situation? Can you help them get better? And there's an implied threat too, you know, which is that like, if you don't, they're going to be fired. And so you're in this impossible situation where what you're trained to do, what you're expected to do, and what our like actual code thing says to do is like, this is a confidential, non-evaluative relationship. And you're basically that it's been forced on you that like you're responsible for whether this person keeps or loses their job. Um, and then sometimes you're asked to report back to the chair. What did you talk about with them? You know, did they admit their wrongs more or less? All, all of this stuff. And, um, and this is the kind of, this is the kind of being co-opted idea that, that I'm talking about, which is, you know, when we are brought into, um, these, these kind of decisions, these kinds of forms of marginalization and harm, um, that the university brings down on people and we're asked to participate in a, in a certain way. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of really, really bad experiences that have really turned me off to the idea of a center for teaching and learning, because even if it says in your mission statement, like we're just about helping instructors, everybody's always looking for somewhere to send the people who are not behaving, right? Everyone's looking for, some kind of disciplinary or police kind of space or person. So they want to get that person off their, off their hands and feel like it's being dealt with or whatever. Um, and I hate when we are asked to play that, asked to play that role. Um, and, you know, another going back to inclusion and inclusive teaching, like it happens so frequently that you're called into a department. You get an email or call, someone comes into the office and says, can you do an inclusive teaching workshop for our department, please? <laughs> and you say, okay. And you obviously have something ready to go. You've done it a million times. And then you just say, like, hey, by the way, is there any precipitating event, you know, that uh, made you make this call or send that email or whatever? You say, actually, yeah. We had a major incident, <laughs> you know, involving racism or sexism or major conflict between students or between conflict and instructors and like their solution is to call us up and say can you come do an inclusive teaching workshop where you say hey have you considered learning your students names and learning how to pronounce their names or have you considered having flexible deadlines or offering things in multiple formats and it's like I obviously believe that those are good things to do the good basic practices that you could do as an instructor but that's off, you know, that's often the position that we're put in is that we're, we can somehow address, um, really deep forms of harm and conflict that are go, going on, um, with, you know, a workshop, something like that.
So, you know, those are those are what I think are the really big problems um, that are facing us. Um, if if I was to design something something different and better, um, I think one of the top things that I would want to include in the mission and in the activities is that the Teaching and Learning Center would need to have as an explicit goal advocacy and activism and movement towards improving the conditions of all students and all faculty. And that includes like material conditions and basic needs and as well as the educational conditions, um, because I think that that's like so much of what we're covering up and what we're being asked to cover up um, with our work. Um, you know, and this is one of my this is like one of my uh, phrases I say a lot, just like pedagogy can't solve everything. And what I mean by that is it can't solve homelessness. It can't solve hunger. It can't solve debt. It can't solve the amount of tuition that students are asked to pay and take on in debt. Um, and, you know, there there's actually a review article that I quote in one of my writings that like literally says this is the really saying the quiet part out loud, oh, why do we need to improve teaching and have a teaching learning center and educate people about pedagogies? Because we have to make this this worth it. Students are paying so much and we got to make it worth it for them. Um, and so that and that's what I think need, that's what I think needs to be undone. It's like what we need to learn about in terms of our pedagogy is not how to cover those things up, but how to teach about them, uncover them, um, and, uh, and, and work towards fixing them. <laughs> I know that sounds like very lofty, but that's got to be a part of pedagogy. Um, and, you know, I think that it would necessarily include, um, the solidarity with all of the striking workers. Like, it's hard for me to not think right now about, you know, 45,000 academic employees on strike in the University of California right now. And the fact that, only about 300 of the Senate faculty have signed on for the work stoppage, um, which is like shaking their head right now. And, I'm like, uh, I'm so glad that those 300 have signed on. And it's a lot better we would have than we would have gotten at like Yale, for example. Um, also voting in their union election today, um, and they're going to win. Uh, yeah. I hope. Uh, you know, far be it for me to express optimism about something, but I'm very hopeful. But like, yeah, 300, if you're from California and you're on the faculty and you're listening to this right now, <laughs> what the hell? Or thank you so much for signing on. That's what you should be doing. We'll give you shout a out, anyway. Yeah. Shout out to Donald, Donald Strong from the ecology department at UC Davis. I was looking through that list saying like, is anyone I learned with on this list? One mm. person, I never took a class with him, but he was around. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's just, it's just really disappointing. And so, you know, this is this is um, something that I think I'm not saying we're going to bring the union fight directly into the CTL or like we're going to be directly involved in that. But, you know, there's a whole field called critical university studies. That's largely what this podcast has addressed in some in some ways. And um, it, I just think it's really it's really hard to, to to teach well and build classroom community if you're not understanding um what we're up what we're up against 
And um, I know that there are a lot of people who already who do this work, but it's so it's so under the radar. And like when if and when you go to the pod conference, which is the conference for people who work at teaching and learning centers, you know, some of the presentations are like, here's a rubric that you can use to evaluate how well your teaching and learning center is doing. I'm just like, what are, you know, what are we doing here? We claim to be about student learning. We claim to be about access. We have a lot of other issues to cover other than a rubric to assess ourselves that we can send up the chain to the provost. You know, there's there's real work to be doing to be done here, and we're not doing it. Um, and so, you know, it's it's hard it's hard to talk about this stuff and hope to continue to work in the field. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I, I, there may come a point where I may not be able to anymore. Um, but, you know, it was, and what's sad for me is like the first pod conference I went to was quite inspiring in the sense that um, I actually remember who it was to give the keynote. It was Randy Bass, who was at Georgetown at the time. I'm not sure if he's still there. When he, you know, when he's, he said like, Look, like what goes on in the classroom is is a topic of moral urgency. We need to really care about that the pedagogy in our undergraduate classrooms because it affects people's lives. Um, whether we do it well or not as well affects whether people continue in school and whether they feel like they belong and all of these things um, that are true in a sense, um, but that work. It, it does get co-opted, and and that's kind of the conclusion that I've I've started to come to. There may there may be like some path forward where it's like, you know, if you want to do this work, if you want to be a person who's supporting instructors in their work in their job, like maybe you don't work in a teaching and learning center. Maybe we break that structure down, going back to just burning <laughs> burning something down, um, and and try to go back to like a peer to peer model. There's a lot of problems with that also. And, you know, I, the other thing I just want to flag about this question of, like, being co-opted and burning something down is the unfortunate reality is a lot of us who do this work would be adjuncts otherwise, right? Like, people don't, I, I think it was Jody Muhammad on, on the podcast who said, you know, like, all administrators are bastards or we need some version of that. Some people think she I'm an administrator. She did say yeah. that. And, I, first of all, I laughed and I loved it. And I was like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree. But then I thought to myself, a lot of people think I am one of those people. Mm -hmm. And like, what's important to understand is I'm a staff member. I don't make as much as a faculty. I don't have tenure. Um, and I would probably be adjuncting otherwise. Like, this is the most stable employment that I can find at, at this time. And so like, that's that's a lot of the balance. A lot, a lot, a lot of people who work in this field um, are partially doing it because it's the most stable thing that they could find. <laughs> um, and I think everyone everyone cares about it, but it's it's pink collar labor. First of all, it's there's a lot of white women, but also a lot of women of color. Um, and it's it's not. These people who have climbed the ladder, it's not often these people who have climbed the ladder, so to speak, of the administrative ladder, have tried to get out of teaching it into administration. Um, and that's a, that's what's painful in a way. Like, I, I do think it kind of needs to be dismantled and totally, totally rethought. And then, you know, there's all the people I know that, like, that's how they're feeding their families. And if we go back to one of these, like, peer-to-peer -peer faculty development models, well, maybe that just makes us all lose our jobs, you know. Um, so that's something 
that's something that I think about as well. I think, right, like, yeah, what, how do we even define administration? Maybe it's A-M-A-B, all management. A-B-A-B, <laughs> um, <laughs> all bosses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I was looking, I was, I saw a thing the other day. I think it was on social media. There was some career fair that was career development centers. Another whole conversation we could have about their yeah. role on campuses. There's some career development thing where there was, a there was a table for people recruiting for, um, for recruiting police and another, um, and some other group, some other recruitment group, maybe student activist group put up a sign that said, a cab alternative careers are better <laughs> um <laughs> which um yeah that was something about there's something for for centers for teaching and learning we could play with that acronym yeah um yeah. are we ready to get to our last question i don't want to cut this off but we could talk forever sarah i know what you're giving us yeah um, I, I just, I'll close, we can move on to the next question. I, yeah, I just yeah. want to close with something I found yesterday mm-hmm. that I wanted Absolutely. to share. It's like the, the phrase I've been using, like given all of these union fights that have been unfolding over the past few weeks, um, about this like teaching learning center context as well is, um, you know, which side are you on from the Pete Seeger Center, uh, song, sorry. And, um, you know, I, that's like really my question is like, are we on the side of the admin or are we outside the students and teachers? And I was reading the Brown University Sheridan Center, which is their teaching and learning center strategic plan uh, as part of my research on this topic. And I'll just read you goal one for their five-year goals from 2016 to 2021. Are you ready for this? Then we can just close this question with it. Goal one, responsiveness to institutional priorities. Align Sheridan Center programs to support key institutional initiatives established in the campus-wide strategic plan. So, <laughs> okay. Sometimes you just say it outright that whose side are you on? You're on the side of the administration. And I think that's what we, you know, we need to move away from that. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's, wow. Um, yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. And that's how they got their funding, probably. Um <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think so. Um, OK. We could talk forever. This has been amazing. And thank you for being so generous with your time, Sarah. Um, I so why don't we just we can combine, you know, we you talked a little bit earlier about sort of the growing edges and things around questions of inclusion. If there's anything else that any of us want to say about that, let's roll it into the last question, which is what are you listening to, reading, thinking about? consuming, eating, uh, what have I lost, watching, watching, um, that you might want to recommend to our, to, to those who are listening today. And we'll give you the floor first, Sarah. Yeah. Um, I guess, so on the topic of, it's almost on the topic of inclusion. It certainly has to do with disability, um, I just got the book um, Health Communism, which um, was written by two hosts of uh, a podcast called Death Panel. Um, And I think a lot of your listeners, if they don't already listen to Death Panel, they might be interested in in it. Um, But what what the book is about mostly is what would 
go beyond Medicare for all. Um, and I know this doesn't have as much to do with he- with higher ed, but like the idea of what what would a healthcare system that genuinely provided not just like for the needs, but for like all of the pursuits, all of the care that is needed uh, for for everybody um, has definitely been making me reflect on higher ed over the past couple of years um, and the sort of connections between the pandemic and higher ed um, and the way that like we keep trying to force everything back to normal at the expense of people's health and well-being and their care needs and, and all of this stuff. So I, I haven't finished the book yet, but I really, but I really like it so far. I want to recommend health communism and death panel um, for kind of critical takes on on health in the state. Um, and uh, while maybe it isn't the first thing that comes to mind about higher ed, I have had a lot of like insights and thoughts about higher ed while listening to that panel and reading health communism. So definitely want to offer that. Um, and, you know, what I've, in terms of my like regular research and activism, I, I spent a lot of time this week reading the pages on inclusive teaching at universities, because it's something I've been trying to look into, like, where did this come from? And uh, I don't know, like maybe what I'll suggest to everybody is to go look if you're, if you're at a higher ed institution, Go look if your teaching learning center or someone else has a page on inclusive teaching and look at look at what it says and who it does it quote anybody of the definitions and what does it offer about inclusive teaching and um to just like kind of consider what's being left out or or what's being covered up in some way. I think it's a definitely a good exercise for the, those of us who are involved in teaching and pedagogy um to consider what our institution is offering as inclusion and what might be beyond that. Thank you so much. Tina? Well, on the more serious side, I've been studying outsource companies that are taking over my college, including just the other day, our our tech division, really, really terrible um, downward spiral into the private for-profit institutional educational industrial complex so there's that um and uh trying to create some action activism around that with our living wage campaign but on the other hand on a lighter note uh celebrating and watching uh katie ledecky who is an olympic swimmer who has just surpassed michael phelps record as female athlete of the year and I'm a master swimmer, so I like watching her and thinking that that's like beyond human what she does. Uh, so watching swimming because it, you know, is something different than, uh, watching, um, my, the apocalypse at my college occur. So, so Lucia, what are, what have you been consuming, watching, listening to? The other day in class, I mean, I've been doing a lot of World Cup watching, which is unconscionable and unjustifiable. And the other day in class, um, we were talking about the Cyborg Manifesto, speaking of um, Don Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, uh, speaking of um, superhuman, not human, whatever, swimming, body modification. And 
we were in our very cramped classroom and there were two students who said who were both on the baseball team who were sitting in the in the corner of the classroom and, with their laptops open. And I'm like, you know, I, I am not a teacher who feels insecure about people using technologies in classes. I'm like, they're probably watching the soccer game in class. And I support that because that's what I would like to be doing right now. And um, at one point, <laughs> we're like, what's the cyborg? Like, how do we describe? They'd read the whole cyborg manifesto. And one of them, I think the U.S. scored. That was the U.S.-Iran game. And one of them says, yes, um, in class. And I was like, hey, are y'all watching the game? And they were like, no. And I was like, I believe you were watching the game. Let's put it up on the big screen. Um, and we went into small groups, and everybody got to watch the game while drawing, designing their, a cyborg for us on the board. And we went around and took pictures of their amazing artistic creations while watching soccer and thinking about um, thinking about the way that embodiment um, and ideas about strength and um, a sort of humanism, post-humanism were working in the in the World Cup context. So I've been watching a lot of World Cup, including in my class. Um, and uh, shout out props to the students who, um, you know, brought us to a moment of, of fun the other day. Well, thank you, Sarah, for being with us. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Nothing Never Happens interview with Sarah Silverman. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our intro music and interstitial music is performed by Lance Eric Hagen along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Acrasis. It's called Sundowner and it's from their CD, Children Singing in Hell. It's available on bandcamp.com we really appreciate all our listeners and after nearly six years of running the radical pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. We especially appreciate all the wonderful scholars and teachers who agree to converse with us on this podcast. We are learning so much as we hope you are. So look for us on Patreon.com.
limits change as they're high in line. It's just four, I get to choose the rate. Driving so fast, doing greenhouse gas, with a little green to heaven's gates.